Welcome to the Class X Podcast, a podcast that looks at independent perspectives in American society. So today we're going to look at Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky is a very independent thinker. John and I have bonded over his ideas over the years. And so we heard this interview with uh, Ezra Klein from the New York Times, and he interviews Noam Chomsky. And it's just a really, really great interview. And in the podcast, you might hear John and I be a little critical of Chomsky's ideas. So if you're a big fan of Chomsky, we apologize in advance for that. But I think what you're going to hear is an independent view of Chomsky's ideas. So, John, did you feel like you were being a little too critical of Chomsky? Yeah, and I mentioned it a couple of times in the podcast. I feel bad just because I'm thinking like, you know, who like, do you really want to listen to just me bag on the sky for 30 minutes? But it's, it, there are things like how you said it's independent. Like there are things that we like, some of his ideas. I mentioned at the end um, that I think the stuff that he kind of, the way he diagnoses problems and he says that things are either messed up with American foreign policy, stuff like that. I think he does a really good job of, of describing it. He's done a great job in his books of, kind of like bringing that to people and, and expressing those things. But um, but yeah, the things that he talks about in the parts of the article we really break down, it really does sound kind of utopian and very abstract. And he doesn't really give concrete solutions to the problems he's talking about. Yeah, I think our big criticism is related to that idea. It, it's a little too abstract at times, and he should be giving us more concrete examples of what he's trying to say. I think Klein does a great job in the interview. If you want to hear the interview, you can just Google search the, or, or do a podcast search of the Ezra Klein show. Also, you could Google search Noam Chomsky on anarchism, human nature, and Joe Biden. If you want to read a transcript of that, it's a good interview. I recommend it. We don't go into the entire podcast. We focus a lot on Chomsky's ideas related to work, related to anarchism, which is this really old, old philosophy that you don't hear often but we we talk about it a lot on the podcast in a critical way because again we have that more we want a little bit more realism in our political discussion so hopefully you guys enjoy the podcast thanks for tuning in again enjoy the podcast Welcome to the Class X Podcast, a podcast that looks at independent perspectives in American culture. My name is Shukri. And I'm John. And today we're going to be looking at an interview with Noam Chomsky. Ezra Klein from the New York Times interviews Chomsky in an article titled Noam Chomsky on Anarchism, Human Nature, and Joe Biden, if you want to read the transcript or just listen to the Ezra Klein show. It's on his podcast. So we decided to look at Noam Chomsky himself in this podcast because we feel like he's a not only a public intellectual but an independent thinker so you're going to hear me and john analyze a lot of chomsky's perspectives and i think this podcast does a good job of really summarizing some of his core values so in the podcast klein starts it with his interest in noam chomsky and i think this is interesting because his interest is very similar to john and i we both were introduced to Chomsky in the early 2000s with Klein, his older brother gave him a book by Chomsky called Chomsky on 9-11. And he 
because of that, he started to delve into Chomsky's work. For me and John, I think it was something pretty similar. John, for you, what was your introduction to Chomsky? Uh, I think it was from you. I think it was a uh, hegemony or survival. And I'm pretty sure I got it from you. Um, and I just remember reading that and just being exposed to um, ideas that you don't really hear very often in like high school um, history classes. Uh, although I was kind of surprised, uh, just I taught one year of high school um, U.S. history. And there was some stuff in there that was kind of similar to what Chomsky talks about, like intervention in Latin America and things like that. Like at least it touches on it a little bit, but uh, it was just kind of a deeper dive into some of that stuff that uh, uh, history that you don't really get um, too much before you get to college. Yeah, I think that early on, like when Chomsky was younger, I think history was a very a narrative that basically focused on America being great and not a critical view of our policy. But people like Chomsky and his friend Howard Zinn basically sort of changed that. And then a lot of historians in the 1960s. But you're right. A lot of the history books now are more critical. I think especially people who are a little bit older, they think that the history books are just like it used to be. But they are much more like college history. And that, that's a good thing. But yeah, for me, it was the same thing. Hegemony or survival, the post 9-11 world, it seemed like a lot of of the mainstream voices had a certain opinion on things, that typical right-left dynamic. And Chomsky had a very independent perspective that I just never read before. So that was something that I always found interesting. And I kind of lumped Chomsky with Howard Zinn, Cornell West, a few other thinkers who, when I was in college, just seemed like independent-minded thinkers. I think as we're going to go into this, we're going to see that maybe we don't agree with Chomsky as much now as we did when we were younger. I don't know. Do you, before we even analyze it, is that kind of how you feel? Yeah, I feel, well, kind of. I think I, when he talks about problems or issues or things that he has kind of beef with when it comes to the United States, um, or like, I guess, at least with foreign policy, I still agree with what he says, but as far as like the, the solutions to me are the problem because his solutions, we'll get into it. I think when we talk about um, anarchism, but his solutions just seem kind of like, I don't know what the word would be for a flimsy or just kind of, I guess we'll kind of deep dive into it when we talk about exactly what he said, but. Yeah, I agree. I agree. When I read the solutions, I thought mm, I need a little bit more than that. And, you know, when I was in college, maybe I, I liked those ideas because they were so different but now looking at it, I feel like I just need more substance. There's, these are just statements that seem, like you said, a little flimsy. So the actual interview starts with this discussion on language and creativity. And with Chomsky, he's known for his work as a linguist. If you study Chomsky in like a psychology class, like my psychology students will look at Chomsky and his idea, the language acquisition device, which is basically the idea that like, we're born with the ability to speak language. So language is a big idea with Noam Chomsky. And two things are common to humans, according to Chomsky, thought and language. And he has this idea that there is a creative aspect to human thought, and it's connected to this instinct for freedom. And with that instinct for freedom, we have this resistance to domination. So you could see where his politics, where he's always, you know, supporting rebellions and revolutions and these things kind of comes from that philosophy where he's saying there's creativity in our thought and we want, we have this instinct for freedom. 
So my initial connection, and I've always kind of felt this way with Chomsky, is he reminds me of a lot of the Enlightenment philosophers who are talking about revolution, like Thomas Jefferson. It reminds me of the Declaration of Independence. This idea, like in the Declaration, where freedom and creativity are sort of mixed together in this document. Uh, did you see those connections when, when you were reading this or listening to the podcast? Um, you mean with, with Chomsky, what he's talking yeah, about? Yeah, like Chomsky and sort of like connecting him to like an enlightenment philosopher or this idea of like freedom and creativity. Um, I get, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's what he, that seems to be what he talks about. He talks, his whole thing seems to be freedom. And I, I know that I've read a few times from him where when he talks about questioning authority and he says like, you know, the authority should have to prove that it's legitimate uh, for it to exist. And that if you really like dig deep into it, like sources of authority usually aren't legitimate in his opinion. So uh, yeah, I, I get that from him, I guess. Yeah. And I think like in the enlightenment, you get a lot of that, that idea that, you know, question authority, question the King. And, and if you do that, you realize, you know, there's like these libertarian ideas about rights that are more important than the king's right to rule. So I definitely see a lot of that with Chomsky. So Klein then asks, and I thought this would be an interesting point of discussion, the idea that if we want freedom and creativity, then why do we gravitate to consumption? And his, his example was like watching television shows. You know, why do we gravitate to this? And my initial, before getting into Chomsky's response, my initial reaction was, I don't see a big problem with consumption. And I also don't see the contradiction there. I don't see this negative element to consumption, unless you're like addicted to consumption. But I really never have understood this idea that consumption and creativity or freedom don't go hand in hand. What were your thoughts on that? Uh, I think when I, when I hear him talk about, um, well, it's hard for me to get past when he says that we have this uh, kind of natural thing for freedom. Cause I think a lot, you could really easily make the argument in the, in the opposite direction that people crave, like a lot of people I think really want authority into it and kind of gravitate towards that. So or, or that right. kind of like hierarchy or structure, I don't think everybody's trying to push back on that. So that's kind of hard for me to, to, to get away from. And, and yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't think that necessarily consumption means like a lack of freedom. Yeah. I mean, have you like, like he gives, Klein gives an example in the interview of his son wanting to watch TV and him feeling guilty, like, oh, well, you know, he's watching TV or he's like doing some artistic, you know, thing. And I don't know, I've always heard people like sort of freak out about this, but in my opinion, I don't see it as a big deal. Like, I don't think television or consumption is going to really change an individual and put them on like the wrong path. I don't know. That's just how, you know, I don't see it as hindering, hindering freedom. So, but Chomsky's answer, which I think is, really interesting is that, well, you know, we, you seek consumption because it's beaten out of us. And I thought as school teachers, we can kind of respond to this because he's saying like, you know, the school system is regimented and you need to behave and you're sort of trained to behave a certain way. I don't agree with that. What about you? <laughs> Not at all. I think that kids kind of, I don't know. I, I think I'll, there's a huge emphasis on, you know, student choice and, um, in student-centered activities and things like that. The idea that we're, it's like super regimented. I mean, I mean, I guess you could say compared to what, you know, compared to just some 
nature state. Yeah, sure. But it doesn't really feel to me like, like I, I really don't feel like I'm beating a whole lot of stuff out of my students. I feel like uh, a lot of them are like, they kind of direct things in some ways. Oh, completely. And I think maybe this is time passing by Chomsky because, you know, he grows up in the 30s and 40s. Maybe schools were more like that back then, but not anymore. I mean, like you said, most schools are student centered. A lot of teachers focus on creativity. I'm not saying that students haven't had bad experiences with teachers in school. Of course, that's happened. But I don't see that happening. And if anything, like you said, the history classes, the gov classes are talking about very open minded subjects and and open for debates. I just don't see that. I've heard similar critiques like, look how you seat the students in rows. And, you know, it's like a and there's a factory system like the one the bell rings. And I've just always thought that that's so silly. I've never found legitimacy in those arguments being in the system myself. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Yeah. So I thought that was a small statement, but, you know, I don't I don't think so. Like if you're going to say. Are the schools I'm working at beating the freedom and creativity out of the students? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think that's happening. So Chomsky then goes on to discuss the idea of a job, which is very similar to the idea of school. And why don't we take a break really quickly, John, and come back to this idea of jobs? Are they a sign of progress or a source of oppression? Welcome back to the Class X podcast. And now, John, we're going to go into Chomsky on jobs. I was a little surprised by his perspective on jobs. I haven't heard him talk about jobs before. So he goes into this idea that the job is something that's been around for like 2,000 years or longer. Uh, and having a job was an abomination for most of history. You're a subordinate. You're a math. You have a master. It's an attack on our rights and dignity. I think I disagree with this. Do you disagree with this point too? Yeah, it almost sounds comical. Just because I, I don't think when you paint with such a broad brush and you say two thousand years, it's an abomination. Where, like, at you know, what specific place? What culture? What what area of the world? You know, and I, I think it's pretty easy to come up with examples that you could push back on specifically and say, hey, I think these people you know, probably didn't feel enslaved or these people probably didn't feel um, like they had a master, even if, yeah, you could, you know, make the argument for it. I don't think that, uh, yeah, I just think it's too vague and just kind of sounds ridiculous. It does. It, I thought it sounded a little ridiculous. I think the the historic argument that he's using, to me, it sounds like someone from the 19th century who's making legitimate critiques of the the workforce during the industrial revolution, working 14, 16 hours a day. I also see a little bit of that Thomas Jefferson idea that we referred to before in the podcast where he sees, you know, like Jefferson would talk about like, you know, everyone should have a farm and be this independent farmer. There was this idea of independence. So I don't think Chomsky is that far off from those ideas. I think he really feels like you want to be independent, and it's it's kind of a common thing that you hear with libertarian thinkers on the left and the right. I think it doesn't necessarily match most people's experience, probably. But for me, I like my job, so I disagree. 
I could also see how if you didn't like your job, and I'm sure you've known people like that, if you didn't like your job, you probably may agree with him on some of those points. So maybe it depends on your experience. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head when you said it sounds like, you know, somebody who's working 16 hours or something. It does sound like, okay, yeah, if you're talking about some coal miners or something, yeah, they probably like, yeah, that 19th century thing that you're talking about. I think that, that hits it on the head. And yeah, I know people who who do like they don't come out and say they hate their jobs, but you can tell sometimes through the jokes that they make about like how work sucks and, you know, but hey, you got to do it and that kind of thing. And yeah, I don't I don't feel that way at all. I, I love my job. I think it's pretty rewarding. I feel like it gives me an identity, something I can hang my hat on. So, yeah, I, I totally disagree with. Uh, yeah, especially, especially when he says like undignified, connecting lack of dignity to work. I think that's off because I think dignity and work go together personally, but I could see how certain work can be degrading. So I just thought, I think we, we are in agreement that the jobs section of the, of the podcast of the interview was a little bit off to us and maybe because he's looking at it in a totally different way. So Chomsky then goes into what I think is his strongest argument, the manufacturer of consent. And this is a big theme in his work. He brings up the public relations industry a lot in his in his early work and the engineering of consent. So it's kind of similar to the idea of schools where schools are this external force. They're engineering consent and they're forcing control onto us. It's interesting. He, he looks at propaganda from the 1920s. He sees a continuity like, look, they started propaganda in the World War One to get people interested in the war because people don't naturally want to go to war. And then in the 1920s, you have this increase in the private sector. And then Klein counters him with the idea that advertising doesn't always work. You know, so just because someone is trying to propagandize you it doesn't always work. And then Chomsky responds by basically saying, yeah, but it's persistent. And since it's persistent, it's going to you know, work more often than you would like it to work. So I was just wondering, advertising, do you see it as something that's influenced you in your life? I'm sure it has. And so, I mean, I feel like I want to say no, but I mean, I'm sure that, you know, you see those messages, you're bombarded with them and it probably does affect, uh, you know, affect me, I'm sure. But um, I don't feel like it's to the point that that he says, I guess. Yeah, for me, when I think of advertising, I think of like my teenage years. I don't know, when you're a teenager, to me, like Michael Jordan, I was trying to copy him. I was trying to be him to a level that I look at now and I think, that's crazy. I was really obsessed. But it must have been because of the advertising because it was such a such a pervasive model in our system like there was jordan everywhere so i can i can definitely identify advertising with my youth but right now i don't know i don't think i'm buying like a banana republic polo because they've advertised it. i don't even yeah. i can't even think of a banana republic commercial i just like the polo style or you know it's just to me i don't know if it works as i get older but definitely when i was younger yeah i think though too like when we were younger it it wasn't always just advertising campaigns. You know, a lot of it's just more cultural stuff that you see. So like when you see a guy wearing a wristband on his forearm and you think, oh, that looks cool. And so you're trying to copy that. That's not necessarily an ad campaign. You know what I mean? So I think that I think that there are things that you get from from the media that aren't always 
a direct like, hey, I'm trying to sell you this, but just stuff you notice. Because like, I think that probably like how you're saying Banana Republic, I think that certain clothes that I wear really is probably because I see other guys my age and I think, okay, that's what I'm supposed to be wearing. But it's not necessarily like just a targeted ad campaign that's that's influencing that choice, you know? So I think it's I think it's broader than advertising. I think it's just culture in general that you get from from the media. Yeah, it reminds me of a I remember like a teacher in high school saying that they would see guys in Nike and all Nike and one of my teachers would just jokingly say oh, you're just doing free advertising for Nike. And I thought it was always funny. Like, and I would, I would think that's not true really, but there is some element of truth to it. So you're right. There are different ways that we do advertise. So to me, I think I, I was also thinking of this beer that became really popular over the last few years at the, the strongest, or not the strongest man, the, uh, the most interesting man in the world. The, the Dos Equis. Yeah. It's a Dos great Dos commercial. It is, yeah. yeah. It gets your attention. Well, I read somewhere that that beer became just one of the best sellers in our country after yeah. the advertisement. So I guess it does speak to the idea that people do respond to advertising, but maybe in in a different way, in a way where we don't even realize it. Yeah, but also too, like if you're gonna if you're Chomsky and you're making the argument that you do all this stuff because of advertising, I don't think that advertising is gonna change the amount of beer I drink, the time of day I drink it, where I drink it. It might it might influence which one I order, you know, at the bar, but it's not gonna like change my life as far as like, oh, I feel like I'm gonna get drunk on a Tuesday night because the Dosecchi's commercial is funny. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's where my pushback kind of comes on it, like comes from on it. That makes sense. So we're going to go to a quick break and then we're going to go into Chomsky and his views on anarchism. So anarchism is a idea that honestly, with right. that, I apologize to uh, anarchists out there. I said, yes. Oh, it's a, uh, I don't agree with it, but we'll come back and talk about anarchism. Welcome back to the Class X Podcast. So we're going to go into Chomsky and anarchism, another subject we disagree with Chomsky on. But first, I wanted to bring up something from the last segment, John. I thought it was interesting when he brought up smoking and the advertising industry. And he also brings up the idea of a cowboy and how that sort of influenced us. Uh, do you want to speak to any of those before I go into it? No, you jump in. So to me, the the smoking thing was was interesting because he's bringing up you know smoking and advertising, and it had a huge influence on, in his example, women in the 1920s smoking. And I think you could point to smoking and see how smoking really influenced people in our society. And definitely advertising has played a role uh, with that. I think for me, one of the things I think of is how like with teenagers, for example, smoking has through, um, what's the new style of smoking? The the e cigs Yeah, yeah. That became popular all of a sudden. And it kind of surprised me how that became a popular thing because I feel like for teenagers, smoking is was not cool for like 20 years, like especially no, cigarettes. It you was know? pretty much dead. Yeah. Except for here, here in Michigan, I see guys just carrying heaters around all the time. 
Oh, well, the e-cigarettes increased it, though. It increased the popularity. Yeah. But no, so, I, I see just straight up Marlboros, dude. Like, Oh, really? <laughs> like, yeah, guys just smoking cigarettes. But in California, for sure, it's it seems almost like it was, when I first moved here to Michigan, it was like shocking to see people just like put their hand out, out of the window of their car with a cigarette in it. It just like it's kind of like, whoa, what are you doing? You know, so but, but then that brings up a question. Is is it because of advertising that e-cigs became popular? I don't remember any advertising for it. I think it's just the flavor. And I think it's, yeah, I think the flavor plays a big role with young people, actually. And, and I think our government has recognized that. So, but at the same time, I can understand what he's saying about cigarettes. You can't deny that advertising played a huge role. The cowboy one was interesting because he brings up historians. And I know there's work by a historian named William Savage who wrote a book about this idea of the cowboy and how the cowboy was just this day laborer, basically someone who you didn't really admire. And then over time through advertising we've and through television which is a big form of advertisement we've replaced our idea of the cowboy to a more heroic figure a rugged individualistic figure someone who's not only gunfighting but also fighting for freedom and so there's been a positive kind of heroic cowboy but he also talks about how the cowboy has been used to sell guns yeah, and the way it's been kind of distorted, even the way that things happened in the West, where um, I think that if you would ask a lot of people who are really like, you know, gun enthusiasts, they're like, what did you think about, like, you know, their ideas of like what the Wild West was? They probably would be shocked by, oh, yeah, no, guns were confiscated, you know, like when you went into the city, you know, like they would take your gun or that the OK Corral was fought over, you know, like because the guys refused to give their gun to the sheriff, you know, and that's why that's how it broke out. And so I think that stuff like that, like where there's, I don't know if you should say like it's a danger, but where that advertising kind of when it replaces reality and then it kind of seeps really in deep into the culture to the point where people's like thoughts on the constitution are affected by it. Like, I think that's pretty crazy. Yeah, I agree. So on the subject of anarchism, which is, I think we're going to, I think we both disagree with it. I have a hard time defining anarchism, John. Can you give us some idea of what he means by anarchism? And if you can't, I get it because I don't know if I can, but I do have a few ideas. I think he says um, the way he tries to explain it is he says, well, instead of the system we have, people should get together and, and make their own decisions. And it's like, uh, what do you mean? So he never really gives a concrete example of here's how those people should meet. Here's how they should talk about it. And I think if you were to press him on it, I think he would say, that's just the point, man. People just need to, instead of having this structure, they need to just make their decisions and get together. And, and it's like, I think people kind of do that right now. You know, I think that some of the stuff he was describing, like in reality is stuff that we do. So it's true. It's stuff that we do. And, and Klein did push back with that idea. Anarchism is an interesting philosophy. Again, it's something that definitely came out of the industrial revolution. I mean, you could see it industrialization. There was this, horrible working situation for most people and anarchism is on the left libertarian side of socialism most people don't even know anything about anarchism today so it's confusing to hear about and i think it was always a utopian ideal i looked up some for some lectures on anarchism and i found a guy who he was kind of interesting and he was talking about in the late 30s in spain how they briefly had an anarchist state 
And, you know, it was interesting, but it's like, it's one of those things where, you know, it's never been put into practice. So it's this utopian ideal that really has never been put into practice. So it's, according to Chomsky, he sees it as a philosophy that constantly questions what is a legitimate authority, which I feel like we do in our society, especially if you want to. No one is stopping you from doing that. I mean, we could do that on this podcast right now. How do you make decisions? Klein asked him. And he says, well, you know, like you said before, you think it through, you deliberate with others and you decide, which sounded way too simplistic for me. I'm like kind of pulling my hair out when I'm hearing this, because first off, we have like the proposition system in a lot of states. And in California, we do that a lot. And a lot of times it's not the best system. So propositions can be good. They can be bad. Direct democracy has flaws. And I'm not, you know, I like direct democracy, but. So the idea just that you're going to just deliberate and it's going to be, it's going to work. Well, I don't know. To me, it sounds like there's going to be a vacuum of vacuum in the, in the whole system. So he also mentions ideas like workers controlling the workplace, people controlling their own lives. Again, sounds nice in theory, but when can, I mean, if you're going to have workers controlling the workplace, maybe some of those workers will become the boss. You know, like it's, it just seems like, you know, every, like every union has a president and there's nothing wrong with that, but every, there's always a hierarchy is my point. There's always going to, somebody's going to have to make a schedule and yeah. And that's the thing is like the problem, like when I would teach a direct democracy in class, but you don't just um, deliberate on the schedule. Yeah, like exactly. Like I would have kids, I'd say, okay, Hey, let's come up with, I'd make up a lie. I got this from another teacher, but I'd make up a lie that, hey, we're going to paint the room a color. So what color do you guys want to paint it? And I would let them throw out whatever crazy color they wanted to. And then I was like, okay, let's everybody vote. But we have to get a majority on one. And then it would take like forever, you know, to like make the decision. And that would be kind of the point. And I would say, okay, so what are the, you know, what are the flaws here with direct democracy? And so, yeah, especially like in a society where we have this many people, it's really tough to just be like, hey, man, just figure it out. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of these like direct democracy ideas or even the libertarian ideas, I think it's for a society that's very small, maybe, and perhaps pre-modern in a lot of ways. You know, I, I think our system actually works really well. I don't know. To me, the systemic arguments are stronger, like on the left, for example, when you hear like a Bernie Sanders type, not to endorse the idea or not, but at least it's an idea within the structure. It seems more realistic. You know, oh, he wants to increase taxes or or if someone on the right wants to decrease taxes, at least it's within the structure. But when you get into like these ideas that are just so, in my opinion, just out there because it's never going to be applied. It's almost like you wonder, why are you even talking about this? And that that bothers me a little bit because I'm like, it's a waste of time to, to listen to that in some ways. So I do see it as unrealistic as a system, but I do think like his libertarian sort of anarchism, you do see those ideas maybe in our bill of rights and in, in anything that's libertarian in our government. So I get that it's important. So I think one issue, actually, I don't know if you remember this from the podcast is the idea that Klein brings up. He's like, well, what about the mask? Like if you're going to have an anarchism with mask wearing, during COVID time, how does that happen? How does creating a vaccine occur with anarchism during like this time? And he didn't really have a response, right? Scientists just, uh, you know, make your own decisions. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. 
that's a good it's a good point i wish i could add to it but it's just like yeah yeah, yeah I, you need people to take take leadership and make decisions and kind of reminds yeah. me of the i think in american history we always talk about the i know a founding father that we both like is john adams he would we always think of the hamilton jefferson debate but really the big debate in american history was the adams jefferson debate and their correspondence early on and adams would often say things like you know this is the more realistic approach and jefferson would kind of have that utopian approach even though jefferson really did apply a lot of realism to his politics when he was governing but i think when i'm reading chomsky sometimes i see that jeffersonian idealism and i wonder if he really believes all of it or if he's just sort of pushing an ideal because maybe that ideal will get people to change in other ways you know i guess that's a more empathetic view of chomsky which i am more inclined to feel yeah it would be interesting though to hear like okay just please walk me through one of these scenarios so like even if it's not one that's like super difficult like the mask one just say like hey what about a factory that's producing that you say the workers should should control it or run it or whatever then like just walk me through like how does the discussion play out like what does this look like in one at least one concrete example so that it doesn't just sound like you're yeah just being too utopian about it exactly all right so we're going to come back after this quick break and talk about capitalism and a few of the ideas from Chomsky on capitalism, and then finish off with just our, our final thoughts. Welcome back to the Class X Podcast. Thanks for listening. So the, the end of this interview, it goes into capitalism. And it's an interesting discussion between Klein and Chomsky. Klein basically he pushes him on some of his critiques of capitalism. And I know it sounds like we're critiquing Chomsky a lot. We actually like his ideas and we're going to go into that in our final thoughts. But I think on a lot of this stuff, there is a simplicity to some of the things he's saying. And so Klein pushes and he says, you know, you, you're making the argument against capitalism, but hasn't capitalism led to so many technological and organizational innovations? Think about Think about Zoom, think about iPhones, think about all sorts of things that just come to, to your mind when you think about capitalism and think about our standard of living. I know as an American, whenever I go overseas, I always think, wow, our standard of living is so high. It's really crazy. And you, you have to look at capitalism as one of those reasons. Well, Chomsky, he sees this as a false idea. And he says that, and his way of answering it was interesting. He goes into the idea of work again. And he basically says that people don't work for money. So that whole financial motivation thing is not there. They work because they like to solve problems. And he gives us an example of a mechanic. And the mechanic likes to solve problems, which is why they like to fix your car. And I thought, well, that's not the mechanics I've met. But, you know, they want to make money. But I can also see that deep down they were initially interested in being a mechanic to solve the problem of what's wrong with my car. But whether it's that example or just the example of everybody's job, I feel like this is a much more nuanced discussion. People work because they like their job. They like to solve problems, but they also want to make money. So I don't know. This was just one example of a few where I just think Chomsky is giving this very black and white answer. I know I talked for a while on that one, John, but do you have any, do you have any thoughts? No, I totally agree. And I think that when he says 
Um, whatever Chomsky's idea of what would motivate people, because that's the thing when he says, well, hey, not so fast, my friend, that maybe we would still have the iPhone. I don't know, because if you don't have those incentives that come from capitalism, what's going to make you, you know, drop the plow if like you don't really have a job, you know, and like you have to it's like subsistence farming and you're putting the sod on the side of your you know, house. Like, why would like why would you stop doing that to just like go make an iPod, you know, for the love of the game? You know, I'm like not you're dropping plow, man. I'm not dropping yeah. plow. You, you can't. You're not going to be able to eat because you're sitting there. Hey, man, I'm making the iPhone. Like, no, you, it has to be. There has to be specialization for us to come up with stuff like that. Like, that's a pretty basic idea, I think. So, yeah, I agree with you that. And I don't even know if it's even that nuanced as far as that goes. Like that basic idea of would we have the innovations we have without capitalism? I don't know. You'd have to have another incentive structure, I think, to to take its place. I agree. You know, as a teacher, it's like, and you, I think, you know what, you hear this in with education sometimes where some, some, some people push for the idea of no grades. And if you're a teacher, you know that the incentive of getting an A or a B, a high grade is huge for most students. It's a huge thing. I mean, I'm always getting assignments sent to me late before quarter is over because students want to increase their grade and there, that is an incentive. So there is a something about human nature, if we're going to talk about human nature, where we do need that incentive and you can't, I think capitalism does tap into that in positive and negative ways. And I think that's a better discussion than just saying people like to solve problems and that's why they work. That's, again, very utopian and that'd be nice, but it's also not bad that people like incentives. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's, 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 it's human nature. So, yeah, I think, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, I think that that point that you made about grades, um, that kind of connects to what you're saying with being kind of utopian about things, you know, where it's like, I think that like maybe teachers who think, oh, if you just don't have grades, then, you know, like, again, like that whole, like, oh, I guess I'll just do all their work for the love of the game. Not all the students are going to do that. You know, you'll have a handful that no matter what, they're going to do everything and participate in everything. But some some people need incentives, you know? Yeah, I, I would, honestly, most people don't respond. Right. If, if you just said, yeah. like, this is not worth a grade, I think this actually happened last year with Zoom teaching. If you remember, we didn't, I don't know about your school district, but we didn't really get, we were doing a pass-fail kind of system and students realized it and they stopped doing the work. They stopped showing yeah. up to Zoom. I hardly had any students. And this year we finally decided like, no, it's going to be A, B, C, D, F. And everyone showed up. And I yeah. think that was something, it was an interesting case study in a sense of, of what these utopian thinkers are saying. And I think that's why I do prefer a sort of realism. And that's sort of my final thoughts there are that with this whole interview is that I do think and maybe you could speak to some of the strengths of Chomsky, John. But to me, the, the weakness is the lack of a grounded perspective. I like to hear realism mixed in with idealism. I don't like when I hear something that doesn't sound realistic to me. So that was something I really had a hard time with. So if it sounded like we were bagging on Chomsky, it's not because we don't like his ideas. I think he has some pretty strong ideas. But I think what he was focusing on on this podcast was maybe more of his weaknesses and one of my final thoughts is i think klein did a really good job of pushing him in a nice way and not just disrespectful way in a nice way pushing him on some of those thoughts yeah i think so too i think with with chomsky in general i really appreciate 
um, I appreciate the books and the stuff that he exposes or I mean, not even exposes at this point. I think there are other ways you can get that information um, on things with like U.S. foreign policy. Some of the messed up stuff that, you know, I think people would agree like, oh, I don't know, you know, ethically or morally, uh, even though we didn't go into the foreign policy part of the of the podcast. Um, but yeah, the problem with me, though, is then, OK, well, what's your alternative? You know, it's like the dog that caught the car. It's like, OK, so you've pointed out like the weaknesses. But now what? You know, what would you do differently? How would you solve um, the problems you're pointing out? So, yeah, that's important for most people. Most people want to hear resolution or concrete examples if you're going to be making an argument. So I like how he's different. I like how he has an independent perspective, but sometimes it's just a little abstract for me. And and I agree with I agree with everything you're saying. Some of my final thoughts also, I just I do think that that Klein did a great job. He did a great job of pushing back, being respectful, but sort of gently disagreeing with Chomsky on a lot of his ideas. So that was, you know, that was my takeaway. I think if you want to read Chomsky, the introduction to Chomsky, the like hegemony or survival, it's a good book. I agree with John, the foreign policy stuff. It's it's stuff that and ideas that maybe you don't hear in the mainstream media, but that's full of a lot of truth. Like, and I think you get that with guys like Chomsky, Howard Zinn. They're actually saying things that you would really you would you would see in a history class today. But yeah, maybe more of it now. But yeah, yeah, things that are critical of the home team a little bit that don't have a, a patriotic slant. You know, so he'll talk about, yeah, like intervention in Latin America, things like that, which I think we we brought up in the first segment, um, stuff like how history textbooks maybe now are more that way. Like I was surprised to find like there was a thing on um, annexing Hawaii. There's like a whole chapter in, uh, oh, yeah. in my textbook on it. I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, that's that's cool that at least because it's presenting like something that really happened in the way that it in the way that it happened, not just trying to gloss over it or make it sound like a positive. So. Yeah, I think it is. I think his ideas are becoming more mainstream, maybe not, if not mainstream, more accessible. You know, like you don't have to go to college at this point just to get those ideas or you don't have to get them from from a professor. You know, like I think that there are more. Uh, yeah, it's more mainstream now. Yeah, we had a movement in history in the 1960s, revisionism, and we use it in a negative way sometimes in our language. Oh, that's revisionist. But the reality is the revisionists are really the norm in a lot of what they were saying and what they were saying was not necessarily untrue. Sometimes it may have gotten a little too critical, but I think for the most part, the revisionists were just looking at the sources and they were saying, Hey, this is actually what's really going on. And because of that, if you're studying the social sciences, if you're studying history, you actually get a, more truthful understanding of the events that have taken place than you received probably the 1950s, 60s, 70s, even even 80s. And I think that's one of the big contributions that Chomsky has had to our society. And that's that's something that I think I'm grateful for as a teacher and a lot of other people are grateful for. But maybe when you get into the, the ideas like uh, anarchism and these utopian ideas, a lot of people want a more realistic perspective probably Any yeah final thoughts john uh no that's it yeah <laughs> so for our, yeah for our next podcast we're going to be looking at the social dilemma so this is a netflix documentary 
which I haven't seen all of it, but I've heard about it and I watched a little bit of it so far. And it's basically about text experts. I'm reading the, the summary on online. Text experts sound the alarm on the dangerous human impact of social networking. So I'm, inter I'm interested in that because I think we see that in the classroom a lot as teachers and we see how it affects young people. And we've also been affected by this ourselves. So I think it's going to be a fun podcast, a cool one to, to talk about. And so th thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Hope to see you next time.